If you don't know, we've been in a series the last five weeks uh, looking at wisdom given by what the Bible calls the most wise man to have ever lived. His name is Solomon. And today we'll be wrapping up the series. If you remember, we started off the year uh, by talking about why wisdom matters and how wisdom helps us make the right decisions in life. And if you lack wisdom, all you have to do is ask God who gives it to us generously. And then we talked about the power of our words. Wisdom uh, is knowing that life and death lie in the power of the tongue. And so we should watch what we say. And then we talked about envy. How envy can rot the bones, it can affect our relationship with others and even with God. And then last week, we looked at the balance that wisdom shows us between poverty and riches. And today, I think we really saved the best for last when it comes to the wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs. And the verse that I'm going to share in a moment, um, it's one of the most profound statements that Solomon makes in all of the wisdom literature that he has. Solomon writes the book of Proverbs mostly. He also has a Song of Solomons and the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, this verse that we're going to talk about today, uh, you may have heard it before if you've ever been at church. And if you've been at church, you may have even heard it taken out of context. And here's what I want to say about this verse that we're going to hear this morning. This verse, if we can embrace the wisdom that's found within this verse, I guarantee that it will change the trajectory of your year. And I don't mean it in the sense of like name it and claim it and whatever you want to go this year will happen. What I mean is that if you can really embrace what Solomon is trying to show us in this verse, I believe that it will impact significantly the way that we view our lives, the decisions that we make, and it will be for the better this year. And so you guys ready for the verse? Here it is, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We are working backwards in the sense that we're ending our series with what Solomon opens up with in the book of Proverbs chapter 1. And he opens up with this idea of what it means to fear God. This is not the only verse that Solomon talks about. In fact, in the book of Proverbs alone, he mentions what it means to fear God about 15 times. But the fear of God, this concept, this idea, this truth, this reality, is not just found in the book of Proverbs. It's found all throughout Scripture. In fact, in the First Testament, the Old Testament, and the Second Testament, the New Testament, we find this uh, reality and this truth of fearing God close to 300 times. But what does it mean for us to fear God? Because the Bible talks about fearing God, but it also talks about not being afraid. Jesus himself talked about this many times of uh, take heart, have courage, do not be afraid, fear not. And so is scripture contradicting itself? What does it really mean? Is it supposed to be confusing? What does fear actually mean? And how is any of this tied to wisdom. And we're going to unpack some of this this morning. And all of us, I think, have fears in life. My biggest fear in life uh, are snakes. And so if you ever want to see me scream and run, just put a snake near me. I just gave my staff some ideas. Uh, Even if it's like a fake snake, I'll run. One of the fears, uh, one of the things I've learned about fear is through my kids. Um, And kids, especially at a young age, they develop this idea of fearing things. My daughter, Madeline, right now, uh, she is terrified of the dark. Uh, any corner of the house that is dark, she wants lit up. Her, her dream will be that our entire house is lit up at all times, which is my nightmare because I have to pay for that. Even this morning, I found her, uh, believe it or not, we gave her breakfast, and she was eating breakfast in the kitchen, just standing up. And I said, what are you doing? Why aren't you eating on the dining table? She said, the light's not on. And so I had to turn it on, and she goes, so she's very afraid of the dark. And what's interesting is the psychology of fear uh, when, you, uh, when you look into it when it comes to toddlers. See, toddlers... Especially between the age of three and six, typically, they develop this idea, uh, this concept of having imagination. And so, 
my daughter is now able to imagine things in life. The other day, she woke us up in the middle of the night. She was screaming. It wasn't a cry. It was a scream. Like, you know she was afraid, so I ran in there. I said, hey, sweetheart, what's wrong? And she said, there's a monster that's trying to get me. And I said, there's no monsters. What are you talking about? And she pointed to the corner of the room, and it was a shadow that was being casted by a towel that was next to her nightlight. And so she has this ability to imagine monsters. The problem with toddlers, especially between the age of three and six, is that they can't tell the difference between what's imagined and what's reality. And so she's not necessarily afraid of the dark. What she's afraid of is what she's imagined uh, in her head of being in the dark. She can't distinguish between right and wrong, but she does have an imagination. Now imagine with me, uh, if I was a very cruel father, I used the fear that she had of the darkness to get her to obey me. Imagine uh, while she was having dinner one day, I said, hey Maddie, remember that monster that you saw last night? If you don't eat all of your vegetables, tonight he's going to get you. It will be very cruel, highly effective, she'll eat all her vegetables. But it will be very cruel of me to do that as a father. Why? She would obey me, but not out of trust that what I have said to her is for the best for her, but out of fear that something bad would happen to her. And here's what the church, this is what the church has done when it comes to fearing God for many years. They've taught people that you have to fear God and obey God. If not, he's going to get you. You should be afraid of his judgment and his wrath, and so therefore you should obey God. And so for many of us growing up in that type of church and that type of culture, our obedience to God was not out of trust that his word is for the best for our lives, but out of fear that if we don't obey his word, something bad would happen to us. And so that's one extreme of what it means to fear God that we often find in churches. There's another extreme, though. In some churches, and especially like the churches I grew up in, some of us have been turned off by some of those messages that we've heard of turn or burn, all right, or the God hates so-and-so signs that you see in cities across the world and that the media uses to stereotype Christians, that if you don't believe God's words, then you're going to burn in hell at some point in your life. And out of that, people have been afraid of God. And for some of us, we've been turned off by that message that we've heard our whole lives, that on the other side, on the other hand, we've lowered any standards for what it means to follow Jesus. And so there are these two extremes when it comes to fearing God. And I want to unpack what some of this means and what Solomon means when it means that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we're going to start, I think a good place to start um, is in the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20. And before I get there, I'll set up what the story's uh, all about. Um, by the way, if you need a Bible, we have free Bibles all the time in the back of the worship center. If not, you can download the Bible app. It's a great resource. If not, just follow us on the screen. But what happens in Exodus chapter 20 is very significant to the story of God and the story of the people of God following God, and uh, God had just led the Israelites, his people, out of slavery. They were enslaved for over 400 years. He leads them out of slavery. He parts the Red Sea, and they walk through, and they enter the wilderness, and he's leading them to the promised land. And here they are in the wilderness. And just a few chapters before, I shared a little bit of this last week, but God, the people are complaining that they don't have food, and so God provides manna from heaven, and they eat the manna, and God is trying to show them that I am your provider. Everything that you need, your daily bread will be provided from me to you. And what happens just a few chapters later are the people of God, they are camping around this mountain called Mount Sinai. 
And Mount Sinai is a place in an Exodus chapter 20 that God wants to meet his people. And what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 20 in theological terms is called theophany. Theophany is a visible manifestation of the presence of God. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. For example, uh, when God is signing this covenant between he and Abraham, what happens is that Abraham lays out these animal sacrifices. We find this in the book of Genesis, and he lays them out specifically, and God as a sign of signing this covenant, entering into this covenant with Abraham, the Bible says, shows up as a pot of smoke and a blazing torch. And this blazing torch moves through the middle of these carcasses. And it was a sign to Abraham that God was entering into this covenant with him. You may have heard the story of the burning bush. It's another example of God's visible presence manifested through a bush as a fiery bush. And God speaks to uh, Moses through there. In fact, in the book of Exodus, God shows up as a pillar of fire. And here we find, as God wants to meet with his people at Mount Sinai, he's making himself available to his people again to speak with them, and he shows up with intensity. The Bible says that there was smoke coming out of Mount Sinai, which means that there was fire on Mount Sinai. There was sounds of horns. There was thunder and lightning. Uh, there was a physical shaking of the ground that the people were in. And all of this is happening. God in Exodus chapter 20, it begins with him showing up with this mountain that his people are camped out at, and he speaks to his people. And what he speaks to them are what he wants them to do so that they can be the people of God and so that they can do what God has called them to. And what he gives them is what we know as the Ten Commandments. Commandments, rules, laws that you're supposed to follow so that you can stay on the path that I have for you. And God speaks this over the people. And imagine these intense signs of fire and lightning and thunder and shaking. And here's how the people respond in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke... They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. They could not handle the intensity of God's presence in that moment. And here's a verse that I want us to dive into. Moses would respond to the people in verse 20. And here's what he says. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Do not be afraid, but God wants to put fear in you. Do not be afraid, but God is trying to put the fear of God in you. Moses here is differentiating between the two types of fear that we talked about earlier. The type of fear that we typically attribute to God versus the, what the fear of God really means. The first type of fear is what he's saying, do not be afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of God's manifest presence. They said, if we get near this God, we're going to die. We can't go near him. This is a fear that torments humanity. It's this harrowing fear that we have of God. It's scary. It rises from your conscience. It's unwarranted. Uh, for many people, it keeps them in bondage when it comes to their relationship with God. And Moses says, do not be afraid. God has not come to kill you. God has not come to torment you. God has not come as fire and smoke and thunder and lightning to make you afraid of him. His intent for being with you right here is not to incite fear in you or to even kill you. The reality is that the story in Exodus is a story that many of you live today. For many of you, your relationship with God and your view of God is the same way. 
There's this fear of God where you are afraid of God. Your relationship with God is the same as the Israelites. I can see God from a distance, but I can't get too close or something will happen to me. This type of fear of God is the one which many people become religious. So because they're afraid of God, they feel like they need to work and toil and become legalistic and do all the right things. They feel like they need to check off all the boxes so that God would not do anything to them. You become legalistic when you're afraid of God, and you even begin to demand things of God. So you say, God, I checked off all these boxes, all these rules, all the things that you wanted me to, so now in return you should be rewarding me in life. This is the type of fear of God where I've heard some people say that I've invited to church, well, I can't walk into church. If I walk into church, lightning is going to come strike me down. You have no idea what I've done in my life. This is that type of fear where we are afraid of approaching the God of the universe. This type of fear where you're afraid of God, even practically for some of you parents, you live out your parenting the same way. So your parenting is fear-based mentality. This type of fear of God where you're afraid of God is the one that for many of you, when you fall into sin, anxiety rises in you. And when you fall into the same sins over and over, you begin to get, get depressed and down and you can't even walk into a church anymore. This is the type of fear where some of you come to church and then I don't see you for six months. And it's not about going to church, but what you believe is that because you came to church and then you went home and you messed up, you're not worthy of coming back into God's presence. People live out this fear of God every single day and this is the type of fear of God that keeps you from what God has for you. Some of you will say, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. I can't step into that. I can't lead here. I can't serve here. I don't have what it takes. Why? Because your view of God is that because you have shortcomings in life, you can't go near him. So like the people in Exodus, you pull back and you stay at a distance from God. And Moses is saying to his people, do not be afraid of God in that way. Do not fear God that way. Where you think what you do is going to incite the wrath of God over your life. Don't be afraid of him that way. And here's what he says instead, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I love what Moses says here. He's saying, in other words, there's a fear of God that we're supposed to have and that we should have. The second type of fear is where we, what we call a holy fear, a reverence for God and awe of God. It's acknowledging who he is. And who we are not. It's looking up to heaven and surrendering to his holiness. God's desire for displaying his glory to his people at Mount Sinai was not to make them feel guilty or shame or to be afraid. It was to show them that he was real. That he was the God that led them out of Egypt. He was the God that provided for them every single day. And he is the God that's with them right there in that moment. The fear of God is a fear that lets you know that God's desire is his best for you. There is something that he wants for you, but you and I have to recognize him as God and have the fear of God in us. Walter Brueggemann, he's one of the uh, leading voices in Old Testament studies, and he writes this so beautifully when it comes to the fear of the Lord. Here's what he says. The fear of the Lord is to take God with utmost seriousness as the premise and perspective from which life is to be discerned and lived. That utmost seriousness requires attentiveness to some things rather than others. To spend one's energies in response to this God who has initiated our life. 
He's saying the fear of God means that every moment of our life is a response to who God is. The creator, the sustainer, the deliverer, the provider, the God who gives and the God who takes away, the God who tests us. The fear of God means that we are aware of who he is and live in such a way as a response to that reality. That's what it means to have the fear of God. It means that all of our attention and our focus, every single moment, every single day is on him. We are in awe of him. I used to go camping with a friend of mine in upstate New York. And one of my favorite things that we did when we went camping was that we used to build these fires. And there's something about fires that I love. I love, I can just sit there and stare at a fire. And I remember there was one time we just stayed uh, up all night for hours just around this fire, just talking and just looking at the fire. And there's something about a fire where I can't take my eyes off it. I understand what the fire has the capacity to do, yet I'm drawn to it. The smoke, the flames, the crackling of the wood, the embers, I'm drawn to all of it, yet I don't get careless around a fire. The fear of the Lord, the fear of God is very similar. It keeps us on our toes and in awe of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. Eugene Peterson, he says it this way. He says, the fear of the Lord is when you can look to God and say, God, there is something you're doing in my life right now, and I need to stay so focused on you so that I don't miss what you're doing. The fear of God is one that draws our attention to God so that our lives are lived as a response of who he is. And look what happens here. The next verse says this, verse 21, the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. The people were afraid of God. Moses had the fear of God in him. One keeps you from God, the other draws you into his presence. And this is another way of filtering what it means to be afraid of God and what it means to have the fear of God in our lives. The fear of God is not something that keeps you from God, makes you run from him, flee from him, distance yourself from him. The fear of God does the opposite. It's the very thing that creates intimacy between you and God because every moment of your life is a response to the reality of who he is in your life. So when Solomon, when he begins... Proverbs and says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What he's saying is this, it's the fear of the Lord, your intimacy and awareness of who God is that is foundational to you discerning every aspect of your life for the better. That's what it means to have the fear of the Lord. And you can keep that verse up there. When you read that verse, you can see there's another side of the coin when it comes to the fear of God. What does Solomon say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But on the other hand, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what Solomon is saying, there is a way to live your life where you have no fear of God. To not fear God is to live your life in such a way that neglects the instructions of God. That's what Solomon is trying to say. I talked about those who are afraid of God and how they live their lives that way. But there's a way that those who have no fear of God or don't think that God needs to be viewed with having some sort of fear or reverence of awe. There's a way that they live their lives too. Those who completely deny the need to have any fear of God, here's the way they live their lives. 
When you have no fear of God, you, be, you begin to live your life in a way where you confuse grace with permission to sin. Where you confuse grace with permission to keep doing whatever it is that you want. And here's what I want to say. This lack of fear of God that many have, have made us casual in our approach to God. In our walk with God. So we raise hands at church during songs, but we're full of pride that remains unchecked. We lead groups at church, but we're stuck in the same cycle of sin that remains unchecked. We go to church every week, but we're also partying every week. We follow Jesus, yet we neglect the poor and the marginalized in our city. We know that following God and going to church and doing all the spiritual disciplines are important, but there's grace, right? So the time that we don't have for God, we replace it with Netflix and activities for our kids. And we are content with our walk with Jesus, which for many in America means they are spoon-fed a sermon every Sunday morning. There's this casualness when it comes to our walk with God. And I'm just being honest with you. I've seen it in churches. And I see it. Today in churches, there's just this casualness when it comes to our approach with God. And you might say, well, Alan, you sound very legalistic right now. Here's what I'm trying to say. The grace of God without any sense of holiness and obedience to God is just indulgence. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's one of the greatest theologians of the past century. He's one of the early critics of the Nazi regime, and he would write all these great theological works. In fact, he writes on the same topic, if you're interested in reading a book, called The Cost of Discipleship. And then he would be killed by the, the Nazis in a concentration camp. But here's what he calls out back in the day in the 1940s when it came to Christians. He calls it cheap grace. He says, a grace that does not change us is not grace at all. And this is what we do when it comes to our walk with God. There's just this casualness. And we believe in the grace of God, but that grace never changes us. I just think that we're too casual sometimes when it comes to our walk. I think that the American church is too casual. The Western church is too casual. We know what it's like to follow God. We do church. We do all the things. But there's just not this fear of God where every moment of our lives... We live as a response to the creator of the universe who created everything, created you, knows you. We don't understand that we live our lives under his lordship. At times we just think that we're doing our own thing. And I think the word that's spoken to the Israelites thousands and thousands of years ago is the same word for us right here and right now. Because if it's really okay... For us to be casual about our faith. If what life is about is believe in Jesus, go to church once in a while, and then you'll slide your way into heaven. Why would Jesus, as he's teaching, he says, narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few will find it. Why does Jesus look at a crowd of people that want to follow him and say, there's coming a day where many of you will say, God, I stood on stages and preached for you. God, I led life groups for you. God, I dropped some money in the church bucket. I did all these things for you, and I will tell you on that day, Jesus says, depart from me, for I never knew you. If it's okay to be that casual, why would Jesus look at the massive crowds that wanted to follow him and realize, they don't really want to follow me. 
says, if any of you wants to follow me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. I think the same problem that the Israelites had is the same problem that we have today. And I hope that this doesn't come off condemning you or making you feel bad. That's not my intent. I just think that there's a stirring that needs to happen in the American church where we need to start taking God a little bit more serious than we do. There needs to be this fear of God, not when we're afraid of him. Look what the people said in Exodus chapter 20, verse 19. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. This is the same mentality that people have today. Look what they're saying. They were okay with God leading them out of Egypt, right? They were okay with God parting the Red Sea, right? They were okay with God helping them when other tribes tried to fight them while they were in the wilderness, right? They were okay with God providing manna from heaven for them. They were okay with the provision of God. But here's God coming down to the mountain to give them a word. And they say, we don't want God to speak to us. We want Moses, you to speak to us, because we can't go near God. In other words, they were okay with the provision of God, but not the word of God. And at times, we just get caught up with the provision of God. What can God do for me? But he's spoken some things over us and given us some commandments on how to live this life. And then we say, oh, I don't know about that part. We can't be okay with his provision and not be okay with the word that he's given and spoken over us. Moses is telling the people, the fear of God, don't you realize, it's for your own good. It's for your own good. He says, it's to keep you from sinning, he says. It's to keep you, in other words, on the right path. It's to keep you on a path that does not leave you defeated or empty or unfulfilled, all the things that you're chasing over and over, but it's a path that keeps you on what God has for you. Don't you realize it's better? Worship team, band, you guys can come on up as I get ready to wrap up. It's better than treating him with no sense of awe. And the story in the book of Exodus, if you have time to read it, I'd encourage you to read it. It's kind of heartbreaking. So God comes down, meets them at Mount Sinai. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He speaks it to them directly. You know what the first two commandments are? You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make any idols. So what happens right after this? Moses would go up the mountain, and it's a sign of intimacy between God and a human being. And God's presence is so strong, and his glory is too much. So God has to hide Moses in the cleft of a rock, and he passes by him. And then God gives him the Ten Commandments on a tablet so that Moses can take these tablets back to his people. And as Moses is walking down the mountain, here are the people of God breaking the first two commandments. They made a a golden calf, and they're dancing, and they're worshiping this golden calf. They've seen God do all the things, and then he's spoken to them directly, and here they are making a golden calf and worshiping, and Moses comes down the mountain with these tablets, and he sees what the people are doing, and the Bible says he breaks them into pieces. He is so frustrated. He's saying, haven't you seen God show up for you over and over again? He literally just told you not to do these two specific things. And his heart is broken. And God says, Moses, I might as well start over with you because you're the only one that has the true fear of God. And Moses says, God, remember the covenant that you made with Abram. 
that his descendants will be your people. And this example, this story that we find in the book of Exodus is the story of God and the story of God's people. It was thousands of years ago and it is today. The God of the universe trying to get his people to see, don't you see the path that I have for you as better and us continually stepping out of that path, going after what we desire, going after the things that we want. And this cycle happens over and over and over and over again. This is the story of the Bible. It's the story of the Old Testament. God trying to get his people to understand through prophets and kings and through laws and commandments, and it never works. And so in the New Testament, God flips the script. Theophany is not the same anymore. It's not blazing torches and burning bushes and pillars of fire and intense mountains. God breaks through in the New Testament and does the opposite. No intense signs of God showing up before his people. Here is God as a baby lying in a manger surrounded by farm animals. The most vulnerable, a baby, the one that we can touch and grasp. Here is God, not staying at a distance, but Emmanuel, God with us. And that baby will begin to crawl and walk and be raised by this teenage mother and his carpenter father in a random village in the Middle East and he would become a man. And at 30 years of age, when it was time for him to step on the scene, he would begin to declare what God's plan was now for humanity. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to put fear into people. Because he has anointed me to tell humanity about how sinful they are and how they have been sinful for generations and generations. It's not what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free. And he would preach this over and over to the point where they crucified him. Here's God not as a mountain and not as a fiery mountain and smoke and violent shaking. Here's God with arms wide open saying, I've been trying to get you to follow all the rules so that you would follow me. And every time you broke those rules, you would have to sacrifice animals and bulls and goats. God realizes there's not enough blood that can atone for the sins of humanity because we just have the propensity to be good on some days and bad on some days. And he says, all of that punishment, because God is just, that was supposed to be laid on you, I'm going to take it on myself. And he's crucified on that cross. Here's God showing up in a totally different way in the New Testament. And here's what I want to end with. The writer of the book of Hebrews, he talks about this, the difference between the old and the new, and he connects the Mount Sinai experience with the experience that you and I are supposed to have. This is the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. This is speaking to you. It says this, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. Let's go to that next verse. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's saying, you and I this morning, 
We don't approach God at a holy mountain that we can't touch because initially the people they weren't supposed to touch until God invited them or they would die. He says, you and I now have access to Jesus, to God himself. There is a new covenant. That's why we take communion every week to remind ourselves of a new covenant that the blood of Jesus is better than the blood of Abel. And here's the call for the American church. And here's where the fear of God comes into play. He says right after that, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? You can leave that verse up there. Here's what he's saying. There was a mediator between God and humanity. And the fact that people demanded it, said, God, don't speak to us, give us Moses. Moses spoke to them and they disobeyed God. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, if they did not escape when they refused the man on earth, how much less will we? Because you and I don't have a mediator. You and I have direct access to God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Saying, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? God has spoken directly through you and I. So why would we treat what he's called us to do so casually? There's no mediator. It's not a man. He has given us himself on that cross so we would see his goodness. So that means this morning when it comes to the fear of God, we're not afraid of a holy and distant God who demands of us, but we are in awe of a holy and loving God who gave himself up for us so that you don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to check off your good days to see if God loves you. He loves you regardless of what you've done and what you do not do. But because we're so much in awe of what he's done for us and his goodness, we live in such a way that every decision, every move, every waking moment of our lives, we are constantly devoted to him and have our eyes fixed on him. We are enamored with him. We are in love with him. That is what it means to have the fear of the Lord, to live in such a way that we live our lives as a response to the beauty and goodness of Jesus. It's not a casual thing. It's not just doing church and checking off boxes. It's saying, God, here am I. Here's my life. What are you doing with it? What do you want me to do? Help me not to hear messages and read your scripture and feel something and let it go in one year and out the other and I'll fix that at some point in my life. What would it mean for us to have the true fear of God where we're not afraid of him, but we approach him in confidence? And here's how the writer of Hebrews ends that chapter. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Um, sorry, the next verse right after that. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Here's what that means. Again, it does not mean that you are afraid of him. God being a consuming fire, what that means is that if you trust in him and follow him and give your life to him, there are parts of your life that he does not want for you and intend for you that needs to be burned up that needs to be let go of. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. He calls us to soul devotion and trust and surrender to him. That's what it means to have the fear of God. So this year, 
when I said if we can just embrace the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom, that it will completely impact the, and change the way we live our lives. It means that every decision we make, every moment of our lives, the way that we lead our families, the, the way that we lead ourselves, the way that we interact with our neighbors, the decisions that we make in life, how we approach the sin in our lives, it's all in response to the reality of a holy creator of the universe, God, that loves you and gave himself up for you and has called you to a new way of living in freedom, not in struggle, not in toiling, not in working your way to him, but in the freedom that comes through Christ Jesus. So for some of you this morning, it might just mean you got to stop being afraid of God. You got to stop being like the people of Israel who said, I can't get near him. Some of you need to step into that Moses mentality of climbing up the mountain with God. Maybe that's the next step for you this morning. For some of you, it might be the casualness in which you treat your walk with God. Just ask yourself, what does it really mean to follow God? Some of us are so casual when it comes to our walk with God. Here's a good test for you. Forget God for a moment. What would the enemy want for the American church? He would want us to live casual, lukewarm, watered-down Christianity. That's what he would want. It would confuse us and we just casually go about it and hope that everything's okay. Ask yourself if the casualness in which you treat your relationship with God is what, what God intends for your life or what the enemy intends for your life. Some of us are so casual with our faith and walk with God that we can't even discern between whose will it is. Maybe for some of us, it's just to embrace this concept of what the fear of God is. And I say this in love to you, church. It's not to make you feel bad or to make you feel condemned or to tell you you're doing something wrong. The fear of God is a reason why I have to get on my knees before I get up here because there's this awe and holiness. There's, there's weight to what we're doing. And that's my heart is that we view this walk with Jesus, not just coming to a building once a week or once a month or whatever it is, we've, we've completely given ourselves to him. So here's what I want us to do this morning. We got to, I know we're a few minutes over, but I want us to just sit in this moment, and I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing this song. And as Trey and the band lead us in this song, I want you to just allow God the consuming fire to burn and to give him access to the parts of your life that needs to be burnt, to be consumed, to be separated so that you can walk in all that God has for you. Maybe you just sit here and acknowledge, you don't know what to say, you just say, God, you are holy, and I trust you with my life. Help me to take that next step. Whatever it is, I want to invite us to do that as we sing this morning. I know some of the casualness is like we got lunch to get to and plans to make, but if God of the universe was asking you to just take one minute to just sit in his presence, I think we can do that and just press in because I think there's something that he's trying to speak to us this morning. I think if we can just get this idea of fearing God in our hearts, will forever change the way you live your lives. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you. The salvation is free, but discipleship will cost us something. Help us to embrace that as your people this morning, to not view this casually, not to be afraid of you, but just to come to you and say, God, I'm approaching you. What is it that you want to do in and through my life? For you are a holy, good, loving God. 
that has always wanted a relationship with his people. Help us to walk that out as individuals, as families, and as a church. Would your presence move in our hearts? Would your spirit stir in our hearts so we can do what you've called us to do?